Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Hi, Gateway family. Welcome to Church Online. We're thrilled that you can join us from wherever you are. Welcome. Uh, last, last Sunday, I began a series that I've called, If I Were God, I Would. And uh, I began by talking about the fact that if I were God, uh, I would consider ending the suffering, the pain, and the evil that's found in our world. More specifically, if I were God, I'd put an end to COVID-19, and I'd stop the suffering and evil that blights and mars our world. If God's omnipotent, as we say he is, he could. If he's wholly good, we would imagine he would want to. So the burning question remains, why doesn't he? We began to consider that question last week, and I mentioned to you that biblical study surrounding questions like this is actually called theodicy. Now, theodicy is the attempt to reconcile God's nature with the reality of suffering and evil in our world. It seeks, as the poet John Milton once said, to justify the ways of God to men. Now the truth of the matter is that God actually doesn't need to justify his ways to men at all. He's secure enough not to bother. He doesn't need a theodicy, we do, or at least some of us do. Last week I suggested to you that every worldview needs to deal with this issue. It's not just a Christian problem or predicament, every worldview must come to terms with the question of evil and suffering. It's the open wound of life. So we looked last week then at a number of worldviews and how they tried to deal with suffering and evil. We saw in Buddhism that suffering is balance. Sorry, we saw in Hinduism that suffering is balance. In Buddhism, suffering is illusion. In Islam, suffering is fate. And in atheism or naturalism, suffering is just what it is. It's natural, it's inevitable. These worldviews built around one particular principle tend, in my view, to end up reductionist, simplistic, and therefore end up at best half-truths. In this week's study, I want to look in more detail at a biblical response to the problem of suffering and evil and pain and try and give some perspective to the question, where is God in a coronavirus world? Now, if you're expecting a definitive answer, then I think this sermon will be a major disappointment for you. I'm probably going to give you a 64 cent answer to a $64 million question. And I suspect that many of you will end up with as many questions as you do answers. What I'm hoping, however, is that this message will open a conversation, perhaps rather than close one. What theodicy does is it offers perspective and resources to speak to the issue, but definitely not final solutions. Final solutions belong more appropriately to the field of mathematics than they do to the field of theology or philosophy. Now when you come to the scriptures, it's plain to see that suffering and evil is one of its major themes. In Genesis, we have the account of how evil and death came into our world. The history of Israel from the exodus to the exile is littered with pain and suffering. The wisdom literature is largely dedicated to the problem of suffering. The book of Job and the book of Ecclesiastes particularly are deep reflections on the subject. The book of Psalms provides prayer language for almost every possible situation in life and is filled with 
cries of pain and blunt questions regarding the seeming randomness of suffering and injustice. The prophets, Jeremiah and Habakkuk particularly, give searing expression to the human complaint that evil seems to dominate history. In the New Testament, the book of Hebrews and the epistle of First Peter are almost entirely devoted to the subject of helping people who are suffering. And then, of course, towering over all, the central figure of scriptures, Jesus Christ, is revealed to us as being a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Now, when it comes to explanations for suffering, the Bible, unlike the other worldviews that we've considered, is multidimensional. It's layered, it's nuanced, and it doesn't depend on one single principle like balance or illusion or fate or inevitability as the answer to the problem. It offers various perspectives, but not neat, tidy, and simplistic solutions. So what I plan to do today and probably next week as well is look at some of the various perspectives that the Bible presents, looking at some of their strengths and their weaknesses. The, the very first perspective on suffering I want to deal with relatively quickly because I'm not even sure how Christian it is. I suspect it's much more akin to Christian science than it is to Orthodox Christianity. It essentially says suffering and sickness aren't real. It, it denies them, in fact. Um, I came from a faith tradition, as some of you did also, that had virtually no language for suffering, for pain, or for, for difficulties. We were fantastic at talking about provision and favor. We had sermons on turnarounds and breakthroughs and divine interventions. And I believe in those things, and sometimes I talk about them as well. But we had no language for the other side of the coin. We preached a superior version of faith, and if you had it, then sickness and suffering didn't essentially happen to you. It only happened to people that didn't have this superior variety of faith. To acknowledge suffering and pain was seen as negative, and what you needed to do was alter your perspective. To have a positive confession, and thereby opening up the way to this special variety of faith. I'd like to say that there's a massive difference between faith and fake, and we didn't discern it. There's a difference between denial and faith, and we didn't detect it. This kind of stance reminds me of a story I heard one time of a young man who went to his Christian science minister to tell him that his father was sick. The minister said to the boy, go back and tell your father he's not sick, he only thinks he is. Well, he saw the boy the next day, and he asked how his father was, and the boy's reply was, he thinks he's worse. Well, the minister exhorted the boy to go back and talk to his father once again and reaffirm the original message. Tell him that he's not sick, he only thinks he is. The next day they met again and the minister asked, how's your father? To which the boy replied, he thinks he's dead. Denial, as Grateful Dead once said, ain't just a river in Egypt. It's not Christian either. So probably enough said on that particular perspective. The first proper perspective I want to look at is one that I'm sure you would have encountered. It's actually called punishment theodicy. This perspective bears some resemblance to Hinduism's principle of karma. It's the position that Job's friends took when arguing with him about the tragedies that had befallen his family. In their view, he had sinned and God was punishing him, quid pro quo, tit for tat. 
Unfortunately, I think this position has been somewhat of a default position for many Christians. And when you hear Christians talking about God's judgment on people through this pandemic or through a tsunami or the earthquake that hit at Christchurch, this is the particular perspective that they are engaging with and the position that they are coming from. Actually, in my travels, I've found this view particularly embraced by believers in the third world. Many saints in those parts of the world simply believe that if you're sick, then you have sinned. The basic premise is that God employs suffering as a punishment for sin. In this view, suffering and pain are God's method of discipline. They are his cosmic wooden spoon, if you like. He uses suffering to achieve rehabilitation, to enact retribution, to act as a deterrent. Before you turn away in disgust, as you might want to be, uh, or be want to do, you have to be honest enough to acknowledge that this position isn't without some biblical justification. For example, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28, verses 15 through 19, it reads like this. If you won't listen to the Lord your God and won't obey these laws I'm giving you today, then all of these curses shall come upon you. Curses in the city, curses in the field, curses on your fruit and bread, the curse of barren womb, Curses on your crops, curses on the fertility of your cattle and flocks, curses when you come in, curses when you go out. Leviticus 26 verse 8 says something simpler. If you still disobey me, I will punish you seven times more severely for your sins. And then there's that passage in Exodus chapter 20 verse 5 where God says, I'm a most jealous God, punishing the children for any sins their parents pass on to them to the third and yes, even to the fourth generation of those who hate me. Now before you dismiss this with a wave of your hands and the comment, ah Don, that's the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we have this passage. Jesus speaking to a man uh, with lameness who he has just healed and, and says to him in, James, in John chapter 5, verse 14, don't sin anymore so that a worse thing happens to you. Now, Jesus seems to establish a very clear link here between the man's physical and spiritual condition. Then in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 through 30, Paul speaks to the Corinthian church and he says this, so if anyone eats this bread and drinks from this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, he's guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. That is why a man should examine himself carefully before eating the bread and drinking from the cup. For if he eats the bread and drinks from the cup unworthily, not thinking about the body of Christ and what it means, he's in eating and drinking God's judgment upon himself. For if he's trifling with the death of Christ, that is why many of you are weak and sick and some of you have even died. Now clearly their lack of discernment with regard to the Lord's table and their indifference toward it had resulted in God's discipline in the form of weakness and sickness and even premature death. In Acts chapter 12 verses 21 through 23, Luke the historian records, On the appointed day Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. Now this seems more like a cosmic sledgehammer rather than a cosmic wooden spoon. 
punishment theodicy, as distasteful as it might sound to you, has some biblical warrant. Now, I think the major problem with it is that it nearly always overdraws the correspondence between individual sin and individual suffering. I suspect nearly all of us would acknowledge at a universal cosmic level, it was sin that opened Pandora's box, the Pandora's box of suffering and evil and pain. And if you aren't sure about that, then you can read Genesis chapter 3. However, what is true at the cosmic level cannot be callously, ruthlessly, lovely, lovelessly applied to the individual level. That was the mistake that Job's so-called comforters made, and they drew down upon themselves the anger of God. It seems that Jesus' disciples had punishment theodicy as their default position, and it was probably reinforced by Jesus' healing of the lame man that we just referenced. However, Jesus quickly corrects their faulty perspective in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. It reads, As he went along, he saw a blind, a, a blind a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man or his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Punishment theodicy rigorously applied simply compounds the, punish, the, punish, the suffering uh, by, by blaming the victim. Psychologists have a term for this. They call it secondary assault. Like Hinduism, it removes the concept of innocent suffering by removing the concept of innocence. It brings judgment, not comfort or hope. I think that punishment theodicy gives an insufficient and potentially harmful account of evil and suffering by myopically opting for only one option of many possible biblical explanations for suffering and pain. It does need to be part of the overall picture, but it becomes terribly distorted when we make it the whole. A second perspective or approach to suffering uh, in theodicy is called soul-making. Now, the essence of soul-making is that pain and suffering are necessary for moral, spiritual, and intellectual growth. Suffering from this perspective has a constructive, productive, positive value that enables our development into Christ-likeness. This is a no-pain, no-gain kind of theology. In essence, it says that God has not created the world primarily for our pleasure to satisfy our self-indulgent wishes and whims. Rather, the earth is a classroom, the purpose of which is to facilitate our intellectual and moral and spiritual development and maturity. God doesn't treat us as pets to spoil, but as children to train, sometimes using painful lessons to do so. So the suffering isn't punitive, but it's providential and purposeful. It's not an expression of vengeance, but an expression of love. The Puritan writer Richard Baxter put it this way, Suffering unbolts the door of the heart so that the word has easier entrance. So spiritual transformation then happens in the crucible of loss and of grief and of heartache, body ache, injustice, inequality, and so on. 
Now, again, this view is one that has some scriptural support. If we look at Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 4, we read, And we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they are good for us. They help us learn to be patient. And patience develops strength of character in us and helps us trust God more each time we use it until finally our hope and our faith are strong and steady. And then in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 through 11, it reads, In this all-out match against sin, others have suffered far worse than you, to say nothing of what Jesus went through, all that bloodshed. So don't feel sorry for yourselves, or how have you forgotten how good parents treat children, and that God regards you as his children? My dear child, don't shrug off God's discipline, but don't be crushed by it either. It's the child that he loves that he disciplines, the child he embraces. He also corrects. God is educating you. That's why you must never drop out. He's treating you as dear children. This trouble you're in isn't punishment. It's training, the normal experience of children. Only irresponsible parents leave children to fend for themselves. Would you prefer an irresponsible God? We respect our own parents for training and not spoiling us, so why not embrace God's training so we can truly live? While we were children, our parents did what seemed best to them, but God is doing what is best for us, training us to live God's holy best. Soul-making theodicy has then some merit. However, again, it's not a principle that I would want to ruthlessly apply to every situation. And even when I did apply it, I would want to do so with some caveats, with some qualifications. Now, the two views that I've outlined thus far, punishment theodicy and soul-making theodicy, both view suffering as instrumental in the purposes of God. Another way of saying that is that they are God-ordained. God purposes them. God uses them. I, I have something of a struggle with those views, particularly when they are made the whole picture. One reason I fail or, or, or have difficulty to fully endorse them is that when we see suffering and evil as instrumental in God's purposes, it's very difficult not to see God as the adversary of the sufferer. As much as you might hasten to add that suffering is an instrument of his love, I suspect it's hard to see that if you are the one enduring the suffering. It's hard for me to imagine how the Holocaust, the Boxing Day tsunami or COVID-19 are God-ordained instruments without raising some disconcerting questions, without inducing some perturbing doubts about whether God can possibly be wholly good. More important, however, I find the idea of suffering and pain and evil being instrumental in God's purposes hard to reconcile with what I see in Jesus. Now we know that when we see Jesus, we see the Father. He said that in John 12, 45, he who sees me sees he who sent me. And if the one in whom the character of God is most fully seen and most fully performs the will of God, if he's the one through whom the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear and the dead are raised, then I think we have little authority to assert that suffering and pain and ultimately death have any necessary intended purpose or even a positive place within the purposes of God. Nowhere in the gospel stories do I find Jesus even hinting that the suffering and pain that people are enduring have been sent by the Father as an instrument to make people better. 
For every person that's purified and transformed into Christ-likeness through their suffering and pain, I suspect I could show you a hundred who have been broken and destroyed by it. Now, please don't get me wrong. Can God use suffering and pain to bring positive results, to bring transformation in Christ-likeness? Of course he can, and of course he does. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purposes. However, I don't think that requires us to say that the all things in this passage actually originate from God's hand or that they are necessarily instrumental in his purposes, but rather simply that he can creatively use all things, even the things that he didn't initiate, to work according to his purposes. In Psalm 76 verse 10, the scripture says, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. And in the margin of my Bible, I wrote a note that I read many years ago. I don't know where it came from, but it's worth repeating. And whoever it was said, The psalmist has seen the wrath of man wreaking havoc in human affairs, but he has also seen God surrounding all its activities by his own presence and holding it within his grasp, so compelling it at last to work out his own purposes and thus work toward his praise. In the remaining theodicy perspectives, I want to move from seeing suffering and pain as instrumental in God's purposes to seeing them as inimical to God's purposes. Now you might wonder, what does inimical mean? That's a, a, a big word to use. Well, forgive me for my OCD. I needed a word that uh, started with the same letter as instrumental. Inimical basically means tending to obstruct and to harm. If suffering and pain are in fact inimical, obstructive to God's purposes, then it follows that he must have intended a world that was free from them. If when we see him most clearly and most personally at work in the person of Jesus, he's on a mission assaulting evil and suffering and death, and if he's ultimately committed to overcoming and eradicating them, surely it would have been most odd for him to have built them into his creation in the first place. If, as I'm suggesting, that God didn't ordain suffering and pain as being instrumental to his purposes, and in fact that they are inimical to them, then the question is, well, where did they come from? If God didn't introduce them into his world, who did? And that brings us to another aspect of theodicy generally called the free will defense. Very briefly, the idea is that God created mankind in his own image so that they might enjoy an intimate love relationship with him. As part of that image and part of that purpose, they were created as, full, uh, as free moral agents. Without moral freedom, love would be impossible. C.S. Lewis says God created things which had free will. That means creatures which can go right or wrong. Some people think they can imagine a creature which was free but had no possibility of going wrong. I cannot. If a thing is free to be good, it's also free to be bad. And free will is what made evil possible. Why did God give them free will? Because free will, though it makes evil possible, is the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. 
So evil and suffering are inherent in the risky gift of free will. And Genesis chapter 3 makes it very clear that it was mankind's choice. It was mankind that was responsible for opening Pandora's box, the box of evil, suffering, and pain. Discover the origin of evil, and of course you discover the culprit. And it seems at one level and to one degree, we are the origin and we are the culprit. Now, I can imagine somebody objecting and say, well, Don, God could have stepped in and stopped it. Why didn't he? Well, the issue is how can God give freedom of choice and then remove the consequences of that choice? One precludes the possibility of the other. Well, that person might object and say, well, God is omnipotent, isn't he? Why couldn't he have created free people who always respond right? Well, of course he could have created such beings. We call them robots. Perhaps not satisfied, my imaginary interrogator fires back at me. Well, he's, inip- he's omnipotent. Why couldn't God create free people who could do no wrong? Well, God is omnipotent, but even omnipotence can't do the intrinsically impossible. He can't create, for example, a married bachelor or create a square circle, not because of any limitation on his part, but because those concepts are simply incoherent. They're illogical. Again, one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, speaks brilliantly to this. He says, you may attribute miracles to him, but not nonsense. There is no limit to his power. If you choose to say God God can create a creature with free will and at the same time withhold free will from it, you have not succeeded in saying anything about God. Meaningless combinations of words do not suddenly acquire meaning simply because we prefix to them the words God can. It is not possible to carry out two mutually exclusive alternatives, not because God's power meets an obstacle, but because nonsense remains nonsense even when we talk about God. It's a logical absurdity to suggest that God could create free will and then at the same time demand that he step in and prevent us from the bad choices and subsequent consequences of that free will. You know, it doesn't take a particularly discerning character to recognize that man's misuse of the gift of freedom has exacted a massive toll on the universe in terms of suffering and evil and pain. I suspect most people are willing to concede that much of the evil and suffering and pain that goes on in our world does in fact originate from human choice. And the free will defense theodicy does account for much, possibly even most, of what we call moral evil in our world. However, many object that it doesn't cover the whole field and it by no way gets God off the hook. Because there is what is called natural evil, different from moral evil. Natural evil doesn't come from human choice. Natural evil includes things like COVID-19, the Boxing Day tsunami, the eruption on White Island, earthquakes, floods, tornadoes and the like. And if people aren't responsible for them, God must be. Even insurance companies know that. There was an article in the Scotland Herald after the Boxing Day tsunami of 2004, and it summarized how many people think and feel. It says, God, if there is a God, should be ashamed of himself. The sheer enormity of the Asian tsunami disaster, the death and destruction and havoc it wreaked, the scale of misery it caused, must severely test the faith of even the firmest believer. 
I hope I am right that there is no God, for if there were, then he'd have to shoulder the blame. In my book, he would be as guilty as sin, and I would want nothing to do with him. However, imagine with me a different scenario. What if the architect and builder crafted a beautiful and perfect home for Earth's inhabitants, who then, in spite of warnings, carelessly cracked and moved the foundations of the building, punched holes in the wall, and generally trashed the house? Who would really be to blame? And I suspect that's the exact same scenario when we're facing the talk of natural evil. The best answer to the question, why would God create a world subject to natural disasters, is simply, he didn't. The Bible tells us that he created a world that was good, in fact, very good. It was after the dreaded choice of Adam and Eve in the garden that there came a distinct change in the environment that they inhabited. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 through 19 records this. Cursed is the ground on account of you. In hard labor you will eat of it all of the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat the bread until you return to the ground, because out of it you were taken. And then in Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 21, the scripture reads, The eager expectation of creation waits for the appearance of the sons of God. For creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but by the will of him who subjected it, in hope that creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the glorious freedom of the children of God. There is a link between human choice and natural evil. The world is not presently as God created it. This might sound somewhat presumptuous, but, but I would want to say God never intended or ordained or created COVID-19. Now someone might say, well, if Don, if God didn't create COVID-19 and viruses, who did? Doesn't your Bible say that all things were made by him and without him was nothing made that was made? It seems to me that you want your cake and eat it too. Now, I didn't say that God didn't create viruses. I said he didn't create COVID-19. When we think of viruses, we always tend to think of the ones like COVID-19, HIV, Ebola, and or Zika. But do you know that only 1% of viruses are in, in actual fact pathogenic? 99% of them are not de detrimental at all. And it turns out that many of them have beneficial properties for their hosts. In humans, they are vital for the development of our immune system. It seems that they slow down some, the development of some diseases. They are vital in plant life, conferring on their host plants such things as drought resistance and cold tolerance. Earth's ecosystem would in fact collapse without them. It turns out that they are essential for life. God created things, including viruses, good. What I think the fall has done is it's thrown things off their God-intended foundation and has allowed some things that God created to be good to be other than good. You know, the outer core of our earth is made up of great slabs of rock, some of them up to 100 kilometers in thickness, and they float and move upon the more fluid inner core of the earth. We call them tectonic plates. There are seven major ones and many other smaller ones. 
tectonic plate movement is called subduction. And it's responsible, in fact, for much of what we call natural evil in our world. Earthquakes, tsunamis, volcanic activity are all related directly or indirectly to the subduction of the tectonic plates and their movement. Why would God allow them and the havoc that they cause? Well, you know, recent research has shown that plate tectonics have played and continue to play a vital role in nourishing life on Earth. They regulate the carbon cycle. They moderate Earth's temperatures, uh, the incredibly stable Goldilocks-like temperature, not too hot and not too cold, is in fact dependent on the movement of tectonic plates. Ocean life, and thereby all life on Earth, is dependent on tectonic plates. The constant movement of the tectonic plates is said to play a vital role in Earth's magnetic field. Without that magnetic field, uh, solar winds, streams of electrically charged particles would, that flow from the sun would literally strip away the uh, planet's atmosphere and its oceans. So as such, Earth's magnetic field has helped make life on Earth possible. I would like to suggest that God made tectonic plates good. However, like everything else that he created good, I think that they have been broken and fractured by the fall. They behave in ways that weren't intended, and the result is what we call natural evil. We know that sin didn't just affect people, it affected the planet as well. In my humble opinion, I think there's really strong biblical support for free will defense theodicy. Even so, there are other layers that really need to be factored into the equation, and God willing, we will look at those next week. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, I hope that this has been helpful for you in terms of your thinking. As I say, it's not intended to provide uh, definitive answers, but perhaps to give you perspectives and resources on evil in general and COVID-19 specifically. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.